planet Earth, home to some 9 million species of plants, insects, humans, animals, and many, many other life forms, all somehow interconnected and arranged in a way that one is dependent on the other. And this web of life is at stake more urgently than ever before in our history. Racing extinction, a call to save our planet, is our focus here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. A picture can say more than a thousand words. That is certainly true for the new documentary Racing Extinction, which not just in one picture, but as a full-length feature film, tells us the story of this planet, where we came from, how beautifully life has evolved in millions and millions of years, and where we stand today as we are facing a massive extinction of species not seen before since the Ice Age. But let's start off with our week's review. And actually, it is so well-timed because today, or whichever day you're listening to this in the week of November 30th, is the start of COP21, COP21, that's the Conference of the Parties, gathering to come to a new climate change agreement. Yes, after several other cities around the world hosted the Conference of the Parties, also known as the UN Climate Conference, in recent years, it's in Paris, starting on November 30th today, if you listen to this show today, and for the first week of December, all 195 nations on this planet are present, which I believe makes it the first conference, as global warming is really a, a topic that affects all of us, of course, and all humanity on Earth, all nations are present in Paris, I believe, for the first time ever. Well, I think that's part of the reason why when we had Ken Berlin on the show, and Ken Berlin is the president and the CEO of the Climate Reality Project, we had him on, I think it was maybe two or three weeks ago. Yeah, talking about this very topic, of course, this has been a huge focus for him and the entire team at the Climate Reality Project, getting ready to go to this conference and have a comprehensive plan created and agreed upon by all of the nations that are coming. And he said he has never been more hopeful that they're going to be able to reach an agreement that everybody is going to align with and support in their countries. And it is, of course, Al Gore's nonprofit. That, the Climate Reality Project. Yes, mm -hmm. that he leads as an executive director. And Al Gore really having dedicated his career after being the vice president to the topic of global warming, really advancing that in the U.S. and really around the world to be part of this. Now, I believe they expect something like 10 or 15,000 people, uh, every nation supporting organizations, uh, everyone is gathering right now in Paris to discuss the future of the planet. What I wouldn't give to be there, honestly. I think it's going to be a very moving event. And people are going to be talking about a lot of progressive ways to contribute to greater welfare of this planet. And possibly, I guess we'll find out in this interview, maybe they'll be screening this film, Racing Extinction. Yes, good luck for Paris this year. And may there be concrete next steps be agreed upon. 
for the hope of all of us, of course, the entire world is looking at Paris and the UN Climate Conference happening this very week. Our topic in this hour is racing extinction and yes, absolutely related, a call to save our planet. That's our main focus. But as always, we're dipping our toes into the world of health and beauty. Here is Sitarani Palomar and her holistic bite. Well, one way that I survive these cold winters is with a steady stream of hot beverages. I love to drink coffee and black tea as ways to stay not only awake and alert as my you know body processes start to slow down, but also to stay warm because it's cold and it's very warming from the inside out to drink a hot beverage. But coffee and black tea, maybe not the right thing to drink eight cups of a day. <laughs> with all that caffeine, I like to look for other ways that I can can keep myself warm with hot beverages that don't have caffeine. So I want to share some of my favorites and I'm going to start with spiced cider. And whenever I make spiced cider, I like to start with an unfiltered organic apple juice. It's really, really high in vitamins and minerals. It's it's better than an apple juice and particularly a processed apple juice. So unfiltered organic apple juice or cider. And I simmer that with some mulling spices, which you can buy pre-blended, which makes it very easy. Or you can make your own by combining cinnamon, orange peel, allspice, and clove. And as a side note, if you have leftovers, it also is a great base for a hot toddy at the end of the day. Then moving on to something we spend a lot of time talking about on air, that's lemon ginger tea. And it is so simple. I squeeze lemon into a French press and add slices of ginger that I just keep refilling with hot water throughout the day. And if you want, you can sweeten this with honey. And this is the simplest way to make it. There are lots of other ways you can put all of the ingredients into a pot and simmer it, or you can juice it and then put it into hot water. We've talked about it a lot on air, but this way of putting the lemon into the French press with slices of ginger, and then as you finish it, just topping it off is a great way to get all the health benefits and stay warm. Then another thing that's really easy to put into your French press is a sprig of rosemary. And I just keep adding water, like I said. And this is both a, a, it's simultaneously a warming and a cooling herb. It's great for digestion, and it also helps to soothe muscle aches. And if you want to sweeten it, I highly recommend trying rosemary tea with either a touch of maple syrup or a little bit of brown rice syrup. And then, of course, there's chamomile tea, which is very calming, but I love to have it with honey and steamed milk, whether that's soy milk or regular milk or um, any non-dairy of your, of your choice. It's really quite an, an amazing chai latte alternative. And speaking of chai, we had an entire episode on that beverage just a couple of weeks ago, which included recipes for making your own herbal chai, a non-caffeinated version that combines the cinnamon and clove and cardamom, black peppercorn, and rose petals. And last but not least, and actually this one is not a non-caffeinated hot beverage, but I couldn't skip it altogether, and that's hot cocoa, because it's such a great time to have hot cocoa. And we partnered with Globe In to talk about variations of hot cocoa with the Fair Trade Cocoa by Divine Chocolate. And one of the variations that we at An Organic Conversation love is spicy with cinnamon and chili powder and cayenne. But you can also mix it with peppermint extract or almond extract, even stir in chocolate chips to make a thicker drinking chocolate. And you can find those recipes in partnership with Globin and fair trade company Divine Chocolate on our website, anorganicconversation.com. 
And that's this week's Holistic Bite. Thank you, Sita. And of course, also on facebook.com forward slash an organic conversation just a few weeks back where we posted this amazingly yummy, yummy hot chocolate recipe for the best hot chocolate ever, I think, right? That's That was the overall <laughs> That's the goal. tagline, best <laughs> yeah. chocolate. Well, you know, everybody's looking for the best hot chocolate ever, especially yeah. right now. Who, who's not? <laughs> yes. Planet Earth, home to some 9 million species, and somehow it's all organized and interconnected to be perfectly put in place. And all that is part of the new documentary that is winning awards wherever it is shown. Racing Extinction, that is our focus in this hour here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be right back with so much more. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helber. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our focus in this hour is a new documentary, Racing Extinction, the full-length feature film telling us the story of the planet, where we came from, how beautiful life has evolved in millions of years, and where we stand today. And we are speaking with the director of Racing Extinction right now, who's joining us from Colombia, South America, Luis Saihoyes. Luis, are you there? I'm here. Welcome to the show, Louis. We know you said that you are there doing interviews and screening the film, so it's a very intense time for you right now, getting the word out about this incredible documentary. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's a environmental film festival down here. Jane Goodall's uh, joining us this evening. Roger Payne, who is the guy that discovered the humpback whales, are seeing the Amini Rose is working on the Blackfish campaign, another film about dolphins in captivity. Uh, film called Bloodlines, but yeah, it's uh, it, it's great. It's like a pretty close to sold out show. About seven hundred people downstairs watching the film at the moment. Students from uh, the university here. Well, thank you for taking the time to join us then, while people are watching your film right beneath you. <laughs> and Louis, you you had an established career in nature photography before going on to become an Academy Award winning filmmaker. Of course, everyone remembers The Cove, your latest documentary, which really changed the way in Asia particularly and really around the world perceive shark fin soup and just the health of the ocean and what can be done. Now your latest documentary right now, Racing Extinction, also deals with the natural world again. What made you personally want to tell nature's story in, in pictures and now in film? Films are really powerful medium. I mean, uh, there's, I, I was a, a pretty good photographer. I was at the top of my field, I think, in some of the things I was doing. I, I never had the response 
with still photography that I did with film personally. I remember the first screening we did at Sundance. There was people laughing, crying, cheering, and asking what they could do to help afterwards. It was so powerful that, you know, in 90 minutes, I mean, I've, I've done stories for National Geographic where it, it takes me a year and a half to do it, and I could see like a businessman on a plane go through my work in 90 seconds. But when you have 90 minutes with somebody and they don't they don't leave the theater, they're focused on one idea, you know, 90 minutes is a long time these days for anybody to be focused on anything. And I think in that amount of time, you have a chance to change the way people feel. You know, the science shows that people don't change behavior based on what they think. They do it. They, they change behavior based on what they feel. It's on their emotions. And if you can... However you can do that, whether it's still photography, music, whatever, but film seems to be a very powerful weapon for this change. I, you know, I call it a weapon of mass construction. You, know, you drop a bomb, you kill people, you make a film, you create allies. It's the opposite of a bomb. So that's what we're doing with this film. We're, you know, we're, you know, we're releasing it on December 2nd uh, around the world. It'll be a global premiere. The first time in history it's been done in a film like this. Discovery's uh, launching across several other channels and uh, with the hopes of getting a billion people to see the film. You know, and that's actually almost possible because they have, you know, they have 2.4 billion people that their films in their entire network. Sure. At least across a broad spectrum like that, you can create a tipping point. Yes. You know, you, you know, people, people say you need between 10 and 16 and a half percent of the population have an unwavering belief in the truth, and the rest of the population just pretty much follows. So, if you can reach that number, then you have a chance of changing society. Yes, and and still, for me, the question: Why would you dedicate your life to nature? You could, you know, have picked a medical topic. You could have picked so many other topics. What is it about nature that doesn't let you do anything else? Well, you know, I did four stories on the Cenozoic for National Geographic magazine. I photographed them. I, I wrote a book and photographed a book on on the Mesozoic, the, you know, the midlife of the planet. And I have a deep interest in deep time, big expanses of history and how we got to be where we are on the planet. And this is the biggest story in the world, bar none. You know, my friends in paleontology say that when, you know, they have a perspective of deep time, 4.6 billion years of Earth's history. When you look at, let's say, the, the last 300 years, let's say since the Industrial Revolution to, let's say, the year 2100, they say that World War II is going to be a footnote compared to the loss of biodiversity. You know, when, when you lose nature, when you lose these big swaths of nature, you know, it's called a mass extinction is when you lose half or more of all the species on the planet. And that's happened five times in the Earth's history. You know, some scientists, most scientists say it's happening right now. That's a, that's a huge problem, you know, because we're all connected. We like to think as human beings that we're apart from nature, but we're, we're relying on all nature. The TV idea, I run the Oceanic Preservation Society, small organization, but I'm concerned with ocean issues. Some scientists were losing plankton at the rate of 1% a year. Plankton is not just the base of the food chain. It's responsible for at least every other breath you take. Let me say that again. It's responsible for at least every other breath you take. Some people say it's two out of every three breaths you take. If you're losing 1% of a year, that's a big deal. So, mm. I mean, it's this is not just life-threatening for the thousands of species that are blinking out every year, but it's, you know, at some point down the road, I mean, I, I think we're already going to be, if we don't try to solve this problem and try to mitigate it in, in this generation, we'll probably go down 
as the, the generation that caused the biggest damage to the planet since the dinosaurs died, got killed by a, a planet, the meteor 65 million years ago. I, I just, that's why I care about what's going on with nature. It's like when you do this kind of work, you know, when you're trying to do work that moves the needle, you want to do something that makes a difference. Yeah, I, you know, I could be working Hollywood films or, you know, but you know, those Hollywood producers, they think of the audience is $10 in a box of popcorn. You know, it's just money and a way to sell crappy food. I, I look at the audience is not butts and seats and ten dollars a box of popcorn. I look at it, you know, the audience is a, a way to change minds and hearts so we can start working on this issue. And, you know, and it, for me, it really goes back to the code. When, you know, we made that film in my backyard. And I thought, who's going to want to see a, a film about, a, you know, dolphins getting killed? And, you know, we made a compelling movie. And it wasn't just me. It was like, I had a great team of people. And then, by the way, they're all back. All the same people are back um, making this to the current film. But you realize that, okay, let's do what we did for dolphins, but just scale it way up. You know, that the, the cove is about a geographic piece of water that's, you know, just a couple acres in, in size. And, you know, it deals with large-scale issues, pollution of, you know, the oceans and overfishing and, you know, obviously the killing of dolphins and the raising them in captivity. But you just saw, you know, now we have a million followers on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we can shift those people over to work on other issues that are near and dear to our hearts. And I think, well, what if that million could become 10 million or 100 million people? Sure. That's when you start to reach this tipping point. We're speaking with Louis Sahoyes, the director of Racing Extinction, who's joining us today from Colombia, South America. Here on An Organic Conversation, I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. So, Louis, you know, we talked about the fact that your your career began in nature. You've talked a lot about the the relationship with the ocean, the fact that every two breaths at least comes from plankton, and we're losing that at such a rapid rate. These are all messages that come across in the film. We want to start, though, by painting a picture of racing extinction, beginning with how the message for the film came to you and how it evolved over the many months of filming. Well, the original idea, I mean, as I started aiming towards this subject before we made the code, I knew that there's massive extinctions going on in the oceans. I didn't really relate it to what's called the Anthropocene. That's this new epoch, which means the age of man. I didn't know about it back then, but I just, just saw experientially that every time you went back to a dive site, no matter where it was in the world, there was less fish, less coral. And, you know, I, I was really researching that when I discovered Rickleberry Cove, and I got distracted and made that film. Then I came back to it. But it was at, I was at Sundance with the Cove, and I, I took two books with me. One of them was Mike, by Michael Novacek. He's uh, the provost of the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and I've been digging dinosaurs and early mammals with him out of the desert of Gobi, and he and his team. And he had written a book called Terra, and I think it was the subtitle was something like The Development of a 100-Million-Year Ecosystem and, you know, and the Threats We Face. And in the book, he's talking about how right now we're losing species faster than science's ability to record these animals even on the planet with us. And I thought, that's depressing. So I set it back down and picked up the only book I brought with me, which was by Charles Barone, uh, the former chief marine scientist for Australia. And uh, that book was called A Reef in Time about the Great Barrier Reef. And in that book, he was talking about how we're losing the Great Barrier Reef right now because of acidification. And that always happens, he says, before a mass extinction event. That's what's going on right now. 
had no idea this was going on. So that was that was the genesis, and um, I mean, it's a it's a bit, like I said, it's a big story. It's an epic story. It's it, you know, it's like the Avengers, but it's real. And mm-hmm. here's the deal with the documentary: I don't want to make a, a film that's just going to create awareness and depress people, you know, even though it's the truth. Uh, what I want to do is, okay, let's. How can we give people the exposition? Give them the information that they need. Tell it in a story that, that's an, like a narrative feature film, something like a film you'd actually go to the theater and watch. And that's what you know we try to do with the code. That's what we did with this film. So it feels like a thriller. It feels like a you know an espionage film, and it, and it is. You know, the film starts out with these undercover missions that we do, and it. I think it's you know it's certainly exciting. You know, one thing I've learned about filmmaking is if you can, if the can's rolling when you're going through something that's fairly treacherous, the audience goes along with you on the ride pretty easily. I mean, if you're feeling something, the audience will too. And if it's real, it's even more compelling. So what we try to do is put the camera in, you know, the middle of the most extreme circumstances that we can so that the audience begins to see and feel the subject like we do when we're experiencing it. You know, they say a good documentary show is a great one. Sorry, they say a good documentary tells a great one shows. And so, you know, what we try to do is show whenever we can as opposed to just telling. Well, and so we had the great fortune to see a screening of this film in San Francisco at the Green Film Festival. With you, actually. You were there. Yeah, yeah. you were there to do a panel. And, you know, it's funny because I'm I'm in this role of media and telling stories. And generally, I favor, like, fiction film. I could watch two a day and be totally fine. But the thing about this, just like you said, it is, even though it is a documentary, it is showing you places of the world that you would may ne- you may never otherwise get to see. Getting to see manta rays off the coast of Indonesia, I believe it was. And, and the storytelling and the excitement and the whole realm of emotion that the audience audience goes through from joy and gratitude for how beautiful this world is to sadness over what's at stake to just totally being moved and inspired because you feel empowered to change something that might otherwise feel difficult and hopeless it is it is the full movie going experience thank you i mean it's a we we wanted to leave the audience with a sense of hope and you know when we do it you know i think we sort of we sneak into it I mean, I know that everybody's in the audience thinking initially, like, "Oh my God, this is a big, this is a big issue. I'm just one person. What can I do?" And in the course of, you know, the six years of filming this, this movie, this film, you know, you you go, you, we follow this guy, Sean Heinrichs, who was trying to save manta rays. The manta ray gills, oh, the Chinese fishermen, the Chinese merchants, are now eradicating the seas of manta rays for these gills that they use for this. Chinese medicinal, you know, alleged medicinal purposes. You're supposed to, you know, cure cancer, cure your, you know, filter your blood. And, of course, it's just a bogus remedy. But, you know, when you have that many people in a country like China believing that manta ray gills are somehow going to cure you, they um, they'll pay just about any price. And so these gills are being, being ransacked all around the world. And there was no place that was getting hit harder than Indonesia. It was the more manta rays were being killed in that country than any other place in the world. And Sean Heinrichs, in this, in the, just the, we follow him in his mission to try to, first of all, put manta rays on the on the red list. You know, this is for CITES, the Convention for International Trade of Major Species. He gets it on the, the list, and he creates, not single-handedly, just put it with a couple of people and a couple of organizations like ours, 
he got match rays listed. And then now Indonesia, which was the biggest place in the world where they killed more manta rays than any place in the world, is now the biggest marine sanctuary mm. in the world for manta rays. So you see that one person can make a difference. And you see that throughout the film. So that, you know, hopefully, you know, when somebody's sitting in the audience and they're thinking, well, what can I do? You know, you realize, well, there's people, first of all, you're not, maybe you're not going to be able to go and save a species, but you start to realize that the individual choices that everybody makes has huge effects collectively. For instance, the, the biggest cause of a mass extinction event uh, is habitat destruction. In the case of endangered species, it's, it's eradicating or the, the tearing down a natural habitat to raise food for animals that we are in turn going to eat is by far and away the biggest cause of mass extinction event. We're in South America. 90% of the rainforests here have been cleared away to make way for cows. And the, you know, of course, the land is only good for a couple couple years, and it goes foul. And, of course, by then, the species are gone. They, they won't come back, you know, any, anything like it was in the, in the time to save the species. So, you know, the single easiest thing that anybody can do to save species especially when you have like 7 billion people on the planet, soon to be 9 billion people, is adopt more of a plant-based diet. So let's say if America went on Meatless Mondays, if everybody did just one day a week to not eat meat, cheese, eggs, that's equivalent to taking 7.5 million cars off of the road every year. And so you start to see the exponential effect of you know one person taking individual actions. The average person is... 10,400 animals in their lifetime. The biggest, the biggest carbon footprint that you probably have, if you, <laughs> unless you fly a lot like me, is your eating habit. You know, they say that a, a vegan driving a, a Hummer dri- uses less energy than a meat eater on a bicycle. So it's a, you know, if you really want to, you know, change the world, the first thing we could do is change our diet. And you know, to start, we, you know, our campaign is to start with with one thing. And you know, so. We just want people to just take that first step. That first step is usually the hardest. And so we figured start the campaign with that name, start with one thing, and then we can start to get people to change. And then, you know, like the Cove, we, we, we create a site, and then we have people you know, create their own communities and, sure. and try to figure out, okay, what kind of petitions can we do? What, kind of, you know, what, what can we do to motivate people collectively? To, uh, to to get a, you know to, into the change of the world, and we want to hear more about that. And of course, where people can watch it, and it it's now being shown all the way around the world. But let's talk about that in a minute. You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg, and I'm Sitarani Palmer. And on the phone with us from Colombia, South America, is the director of Racing Extinction, an amazing new documentary showing what is at stake and the beauty of the world in regard to species. Louis Sarhoyas, again, joining us from Colombia today. Louis, thanks for making the time. Stay with us. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. 
At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Planet Earth is our topic in this hour, Racing Extinction, an amazing new documentary. And we have the director of the documentary on the phone with us from Colombia, South America, Louis Saihoyas. Thanks again for joining us, Louis. So, Louis, you, you have been screening at film festivals. We saw you in San Francisco. You're in Colombia, South America right now. How has the response been thus far from audiences? It's pretty incredible. I mean, it's uh, playing it. Uh, we just played it at uh, Monaco, and uh, it's standing ovations wherever we play it. It's, uh, I mean, it's the kind of film that you know, gets people to their feet. They get, you know, this woman just saw it here. Uh, few hours ago and give me a big hug after I was going to the audience to, going to the audience to, to get through an interview. And, you know, people love the film. It's a, you know, it does make you sad, but it, it, at the end it brings you up, you know, because you start to realize that there's, there is a lot going on. There is these people like John Heinrichs and Paul Hilton and, you know, trying to save the planet, trying to do these miraculous things almost single-handedly. And it's it's just it's a it's a feel good movie at the end of the day. You realize that we're losing a lot, but you also realize, like Jane Goodall says in the film, that there's so much left yet to save. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot worth worth fighting for. And so, you know, that's what we want to do with the film is just realize that, that everybody everybody has the power to take action and make a big difference. Well, it is the one topic that really unites us all, right? When I watched the movie, I felt like people were in awe in New York when you. Uh, through the images of the species that are on the endangered species list onto the World Trade Center building. The UN. It was the UN building, right? Louis? Oh, at the UN building. And just, you know, the, the, the diversity in New York as a, as a metaphor or symbol for the diversity around the world. People in Colombia, in Europe, in America, hear the message that we united as one species need to step up because nobody else will do it. We created this mess and we need to be the solution in it. Is that what you feel, that the, the energy and how it's perceived really is kind of a united voice of, of all people? Yeah, in the film we made a very concerted effort to not make too many bad guys that were outside of everybody. I mean, you know, be easy to take pot shots. You know, the politicians that are in the pockets of the oil companies take pot shots at the, the Koch brothers and the oil companies. But we wanted to have people take responsibility for their own life so they don't feel like the problem. I can't remember who, who said it first, but, you know, Gandhi said, you know, be the change. And that's what we try to do with this film. You know, try to every every social revolution takes one person at a time. Mm. So instead of trying to change the governments, trying to change corporations, which still needs to be done, but we think change people first, change people first, and the politicians will follow. The politicians should be scared of us, not the other way around. Mm. 
Well, everybody is going to have a chance to see this film, Racing Extinction. The worldwide broadcast premiere is going to be on Discovery Channel and its affiliate networks beginning December 2nd. And Louis, where else is the film going to be appearing beginning, um, you know, after the world broadcast premiere beginning in December? And I have an additional question related. Is this going to be screened at the Climate Change Conference in Paris? Yeah, we're going to be showing it, uh, boy, several places in Paris. And, you know, we're still working at it all. There's something called the World Climate Summit. The World Bank wants to screen the film. Uh, another big organization just called and wants to screen it as well. And we might do multiple screenings there. Um, you know, we're, you know, we've been working on the film for, for six years. You know, like you, you mentioned that we did this, you know, a big screening in the United Nations for, you know, to center the world government power. Then we just did, First, we screened it down there, not screened the film, but we put endangered species on the Empire State Building. There's another building that we're going to probably crash in, not into the Discovery premiere, but probably about a week after we're doing a, a big screening. I, I can't say exactly what building it is, but it's in Rome. Wow. <laughs> and uh, it'll be right, it'll, it will do that screening on December 8th. It'll be, you know, when world leaders are gathering in Paris to, you know, enact laws that will enforce the protocols, carbon emissions, we're going to be you know, projecting on a very prominent you know, just to get people on the same page you know, as part of this effort to, to make this a global movement. It's not just a film, it's a, it's a movement. And we want, you know, I think we'll feel like it's a failure if we don't reach that tipping point of reaching 10 to, 10 to 16% of the population of the world, not just the United States. And of course, the Discovery Channel, December 2nd, worldwide premiere for anyone to watch. Um, that's not pay-per-view. That's really a public showing. That's very exciting. And again, that that coincides, or maybe not by coincidence, but mm -hmm. that overlaps with the UN Climate Change Conference in Paris. So really, the perfect time, the perfect year. Of course, you picked this because it's overdue. And yet it does feel like a, a beautiful culmination of, of all the work for decades that uh, environmentalists and other people have done, uh, including Al Gore pointing out climate change. Are you already looking at a next project or are you so engaged with this one still and there's so much to do to promote it and and uh, speak on that this is really still very, very much your work? Yeah, no, we've, uh, we started another project uh, <laughs> about of course. three months ago, and it's uh, it's actually being executive produced. A lot of money's coming from Jim and Susie Cameron. It's on vegan athletes, the top athletes in the world. A lot of them are vegan. Uh, Scott Jerk just ran the Appalachian Trail two marathons a day for 46 days straight. You know, he ran 2,200 miles on a vegan diet. He's been vegan for decades. Patrick Babumian, world's strongest guy, carried more weight, heavy weight, further than anybody's ever carried it. He's a vegan, nine-time uh, world champion arm wrestler. Uh, Alexi Babudin, also a vegan. You know, the evidence is pointing that to be a man, to be a real man, you don't have to eat. In fact, it's, it's, it's unhealthy to be eating meat and dairy. We know that. The World Health Organization just came out and said processed meat Things like pork are, you know, now on the same level of cancer as asbestos and smoking. So we know that eating meat's bad for you. We know it's bad for the animals. You know, billions of animals just killed right here. You know, in America, in America, it's every year. And for the environment, there's nothing more toxic than raising meat for human consumption. That's, you know, 
one way we want to get people to do is to make a film so people realize, especially men, because men are the, are the main obstacles. Women are, are generally more compassionate when they eat in the vegetarian meals. Guys are like conditioned to say, well, this can't be a meal, this has meat in it. So by showing these, you know, these aspirational men of this adonises of strength and, and performance, we want to get people to realize that men, especially, realize that you don't need to get protein and your nutrition. All protein, all nutrition comes from plants, and it's just you're just mugging the animal to get it to get what it ate from the plant. So why not just cut out the middleman? Better for yourself, the planter than the animal. Hmm. So that's the next film, and we're about I'd say about a third of the way through it, but I do have to take a break while we're on the filming of that until we promote the film. It's you know this is kind of the award season. And sure. know, awards are another way to, besides a network, to get the film seen to elevate the platform. Sure. Um, we just were at Monaco two days ago. We won Best of Festival there, and Best Doc of the Festival. Day before that, I think we won Naples, Florida. So the films, you know, not, it, it's, it's resonating with audiences in a very powerful way. So it's, uh, again, I'm very proud to represent the film. Cause yeah. Like 12, I'm just the director. Right? We had 1,200 people working mm. on the film. And, well, well, thank you for, for making the time. I know the film is literally right now showing at a theater below you and you're heading in there to be part of the panel when it ends. Um, you certainly did don't right. need to see it again, but thanks for making <laughs> the time um, all the way from Colombia, South America. That's Luis Saihoyas, the director of Racing Extinction. Again, world premieres December 2nd on Discovery Channel. Don't miss it. And thanks, Louis, for making the time today for all your amazing work dedicated to nature and all of us. And good luck with your next project. Thanks so much. Pleasure thanks. to have you. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yes, and wow. of course we had Scott Urich uh, on the show. It was right after his book came out. Runner, mm -hmm. who is uh, a vegan, and really racing extinction, meat consumption or not, it's a must-watch film wherever you stand if you care about life on it the planet. Will, it will really move you. I, I can't just see the film. That's what I want to say. And and if, if it's surely to experience worlds that you would never see otherwise, if you've always wanted to see Indonesia, if you've always wanted to see manta rays, if you've, I mean, there are so many things you will discover in watching this. And at the same time, you are going to feel a strong sense of personal motivation and a thing that unites you with everybody else around the world. Again, that's Racing Extinction. And this, of course, is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Hilbert. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we're staying with the topic of species and extinction and a plant-based diet as one of, one of the big contributors to how the climate and the planet is doing. Here is the update from the world of produce, directly from the produce doc. Here is What's in Season. And with us now is the voice of the San Francisco produce market, directly from the dock. Here is Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce. I hope so. Earl, are you there? <laughs> Yeah, I'm here. Good morning. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sita. Hi there. So it's crisp. Wow. They oh, they, oh, they, so they took I they took the it. light from us. They gave us an hour, but they took the light clearly. Amazing how at least here in the wider Bay Area, I think almost throughout California at least, where this show has been produced, uh, the, the temperature dropped within two days after, and it's now 
crisp and cold and clear days and we got some rain already, what's happening in the produce dock? Is how, how are the crops affected and what's peaking right now? Well, you know, mentioning the, the, the drop in temperature has really affected us because we've just gone through the hottest summer we've ever had in San mm. Francisco. Oh, you're right. Which, uh, which altered the, one of the great benefits of having a warehouse in San Francisco, and that was the fog, and which would keep our facility very, very mild. So think July and August, September, you know, if you go into Sacramento, you're 95 to 105 degrees where the, that high heat would suck in the fog through the Golden Gate. San Francisco would have that famous fog, and it would average around 60 degrees, and my warehouse would maintain a 55 degrees, which is perfect. So this past summer, we were getting 80, 85s in the city. So with wow. this cool temperature now, we're back to the beauty of the fall weather and the insulation that the fog used to give us. So our warehouse is this perfect 55 to 50 degrees And everything loves it. And yes. the products we're getting are the are these fantastic greens, navel oranges. Love that temperature. It's so perfect for so many things. It's also uh, pretty perfect for the for the topic I want to focus on, which is pomegranates. Oh. Uh, they have a very short season, uh -huh. and we're talking about maybe October all the way up. Maybe last week of September, all through October, all through November, and sometimes you creep in December. And so it's a very holiday item this beautiful dark red to, to pale red color of course it's in the news a lot right now because of the wonderful nutritional uh, qualities and everybody's juicing it everybody's putting it in juices because of the great benefit benefits that they have yeah it's a total um, nutritional powerhouse super right? antioxidant yeah mm -hmm. vitamin c i mean just really 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 good for you when yeah. we, it's such a novelty though because we don't have it year-round, really, that people, just like artichokes, we, we talked about artichokes a few months back, and uh, even though those are often, you know, year-round now, too, if they're imported, but it's uh, pomegranates. How do you pick a perfect pomegranate? How do you store it? Well, pomegranates, they grow in the same area that peaches do. They like drier weather. They like high heat. They like low humidity. And one of the most peculiar things for me is that they look like they grow in a bush, How they grow, it can, it's, it's termed as either a small tree or a shrub or a bush. In, in the store, you want to look for real beautiful, glossy color because that's the natural state of a ripe piece of fruit. Now, color isn't everything, just like uh, most produce, but it is a wonderful thing. So when you have a lower color, it still can be good. What you want to look for is shiny, whether it's a lower red or a dark red, that's both good. In other words, not dull. That dullness is going to be a little too ripe, most probably, or it shows it's been sitting around. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean it's necessarily bad, but it does mean it has less shelf life. So if you're going to use it right away, that's not a bad thing. But if you want to keep it for more than a couple weeks, you want to get something a little, little more bright and vibrant. It should be heavy for its weight. And it, it, one of the things it does do as it ripens, it creates this, it loses hydration which focuses the flavors, and appearance-wise, it creates these kind of angles on this round piece of fruit, which is all that is, is that it's dehydrated a bit, it's lost some excess uh, moisture, and now it's really nice and, and sweet and still very juicy inside those little wonderful, I guess they're called aerials. 
Errols, I think is how Errols, you say it. There you go. Yeah, it's so fascinated as we are moving towards Christmas, which is kind of the end of the pomegranate season, as you said, they do look more and more like Christmas ornaments, right? They Absolutely. do turn into these kind of little bit dried out, edgy, lots of little grooves <laughs> and uh, kind of dense, like it, they do turn into a Christmas ornament almost. I mean, you, they are so beautiful, you could just put a tie around it, string them and, and hang them. Hmm. Well, um, I think... I think that is not uncommon. People do do that because as they dry out, especially if you can find some little ones, and you have the, and they have that one end that you can actually yeah, easy somehow to manipulate tie. into uh, <laughs> um, an, an attachment of some sort that yes. you can have on a tree. It's really quite beautiful. When we bring them home, are we talking countertop and eating them within yeah. a few days or fridge? Like how do yeah, how do they behave? I, I would say fridge. If you're going to eat it within a couple of days, leave it out on the table on the counter. Any longer than that, put it in the refrigerator. Uh, it likes to be held in a cold place, and they have great shelf life. Yeah, in the and refrigerator, honestly, you could keep it for weeks. Uh huh. But it, it and where it may show its wear and tear uh, are on the extremities, whether the blossom end or the stem end may get a little brown, and then the color, of course, will get a little bit of a dullness. But that can that can be attractive in its own sense too. Sure. Yes, and uh, the nutritional powerhouse, of course. And Sita, what would you do with a pomegranate? I'm thinking salads. They yeah, fruit from salads color are very fruit salad the and tartness, salad. right? It's just amazing what they can add. Do you have like a f favorite quick recipe that well, you can throw? Well, I do like to serve them in a in a fruit salad with orange, some kind of citrus segments because they're both very seasonal right now and delicious together. And the and the color contrast is stunning. It's like the most beautiful fruit salad you will ever serve with citrus segments and pomegranate seeds. And, and since I'm a big wild rice lover, wild rice with some pomegranate seeds and a little bit of nutritional yeast. Oh, it's a yeah, meal in itself. A bit of Done. Spinach, maybe, don't, yeah, exactly. Spinach. Some kind of green or kale. Arugula. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's why they are also so good and so popular in Nutty. green salads because that that sweet and tart contrast is really okay. great. And if you do want to use them to make juice, I mean the the fruit. It's kind of an odd fruit because the the edible part is around the seed of the oh, tons of little seeds. These arils you're talking about. So the way that we used to do it um, is we would we would collect all of the seeds from from inside of the pomegranate, put them in a blender and puree it as much as you can, and then you put it through a fine sieve and it yeah. will it will catch all of the little flecks of the seed and what you will strain out is all of that incredible pomegranate juice and then you can drink it or you can reduce it and then use it as a sauce which is nice. just to die for and of course that fiber that you would sieve out is absolutely edible and actually really good for you including the white stuff actually even though that's pretty bitter that's where the bioflavonoids sit as well as with any those fruits that hold the seed yes you know and a couple of other things you can cut it in half like a cross section and juice it like you would have an orange oh, oh fascinating. how great and you don't need Check to that out. peel now, the seeds out of there wear anything that uh you that is an heirloom or like <laughs> you a blouse yeah your favorite no. white blouse no terrible idea <laughs> <laughs> yep, you know, buyer beware that it, this will stain if anything shoots out at you. And I think also, maybe, I don't know if it was you, Sita, uh, that I think some people say you can, you know, I've had people say, yeah, it's, it's such a pain to get those little seeds out. Well, I think if you if you can peel the exterior and then put, uh, submerge 
in a, in a big bowl of water, those seeds will come out and float around rather than trying to pick them off and, and they spray everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Other way around, actually, the pith will float to the top and the seeds will sink to the bottom. And there it makes it really easy for you to just scoop out any of that white stuff that you're getting rid of. just break the and they just mm-hmm. all fall out. Yep. Nice. Yep. Thank you, Easy Earl. pomegranate enjoyment. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, just an FYI, the trees are just really wonderful. You ever get an opportunity, like I said, some people consider them a, a bush or a shrub. And they and when just before harvest, uh, these bushes can have a huge abundance of fruit on it, and it really looks pretty. So it if you does. have that, that opportunity, probably not this year, the, the harvest is about done, but you know, think about it for the future. Yeah, it's like persimmons. You know, all of a sudden, all the trees have these golden road, yeah. red, orange. And they orange, look like, like they've been decorated <laughs> totally for the Christmas, holidays. Totally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Earl. We love having you on every week. Maybe and that's where we got it from, most. how to decorate it. It might yes. have been. Thank you, yeah. Earl. Always Lovely. To to you. Happy holidays. Yeah. Talk to you next we'll week. We'll have you back next week. Good deal. Take Bye. care. <laughs> Bye. Bye now. Great. Yes, from organic produce and racing extinction and the UN Climate Conference. It was a rich hour. We've come full circle once again. And again, you know, there there are amazing documentaries on a specific issue like animal care or animal treatment or, you know, working conditions. We had such good documentaries on this show. And yet this one sticks out for me because it's a it's an issue that affects every single person on the planet. When you when you see something just about the ocean health and you live inland, it might not quite you know be as relevant to you, even though everything affects everything else. But it's not a topic you would think of every day. This one is something we should be thinking of every day. When you watch Racing Extinction, you know where we're at and what's at stake and what we can do. I hope every school oh, yes. school kid sees it. It's Absolutely. shown everywhere. Well, and Louis said, you know, when we asked what the reception has been like at the screenings of the film, he said it, this is a film that brings people to their feet. And that is actually what happened in San Francisco. At the end of the film, there was a standing ovation. There were a lot of tears, tears of sadness and joy. Because at the end of the film, they have many slides that give you concrete things you can do. If you do this one thing, it will help in this way. And Helga, that's a criticism that you have brought up about other documentaries before in the past, that they'll show you the problem, but then they'll end there and they won't tell you how you can help. This film tells us how we can help. Yes. Beautiful that there is a concrete, you know, easy to do action plan afterwards. But also the the images you see, what, what really makes this film so extraordinary is the cinematography we're talking about species and you will be able to see species that, as you said in the interview, Sita, most people will never get the chance to see in real life. It's traveling around the world and wow, the beauty, even though we know it's out there and we know what, what animals in Africa and Asia and in the ocean really look like, the way they are presented is so gorgeous. It is. That's why it's such a celebration. This is what life looks like. You know, the colors and the behavior and the beauty of this web of life that we now get to save. That's just yes. wonderful. And that brings for me the the one thing that, that I left feeling about the film is this is a film that breeds reverence. Yeah, it's a total celebration of life. Racing Extinction. And the website, racingextinction.com. And this is anorganicconversation.com. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back with more topics on life and everything that makes life worth living next week. See you then. Bye.
An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. This show would not be possible without the ongoing support from our listeners. Whether it's a dollar a month or a one-time donation, please consider becoming a patron of An Organic Conversation. For more information on how to support this program, please visit patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash An Organic Conversation. Thank you for your contribution. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business since 1988. The website is earlsorganic.com. And also Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helber and Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye.